The forestry industry is banking on the dawning era of carbon markets to power it out of the doldrums. Despite all the bold predictions of a bright future, the forests are shrinking and sawmills are closing around the country, 19 in the last year, two of those in the last month. But as Ian Telfer has been finding out, the sector might finally have picked a winner. Driving down from Rotorua to Taupo, a staggering amount of the forest tracts that used to border the road are now bright green paddocks of dairy cows. From where I'm sitting on top of a vast pile of trees that were prematurely uprooted, I can see pasture blocks on almost every piece of flat land around. It's conversions like this all over the country, but especially in the central North Island, that have created the first real deforestation since the pioneer days. In many ways, the dairy boom has been disastrous for forestry. In the last four years, nearly 40,000 hectares of forest has been cut down and not replaced. New planting has all but stopped. But the rapid increase in dairy production, as payouts to farmers soar, coincides with the upswing in concern about the country's greenhouse gas emissions. With dairy a major contributor to New Zealand's total emissions, the increasing number of cows and decreasing number of trees is an issue smack in the face of policymakers and consumers. Foresters are determined to keep it that way for as long as possible. Forestry, even with the deforestation, is still a net absorber of carbon in New Zealand. It's still a net contributor to climate change mitigation. All that forests do is they pluck a bit of carbon out of the atmosphere, turn it into wood, store it there for 20 or 30 years. You chop the tree down. If you keep solid wood, the carbon is still stored in it. Just down the road from where we're sitting, you've got the old wooden government building built in the 1870s. The carbon that was in the cowrie trees that, um, when they were felled to make that up is still sitting in that, in, in that building. Sawmillers have become believers too. Wood locks in carbon, you know, houses, buildings stay around for 50, 100 years, and it doesn't use nearly as much carbon to manufacture the products. So, huge advantage on this whole carbon sink measure. Tom Richardson, the head of the Crown Forestry Research Institute, Scion, says he's now optimistic about the sector's future. Probably as long ago as 10 years ago that the um, Sydney Futures Exchange started mooting the point of a carbon trading desk. Uh, in the New Zealand context, I think, without having the ETS in place, no one really knew how the, how the carbon trading was going to work for New Zealand. I think there's still, it's still questions there. And the model price of carbon is still all over the show. But it's certainly coming now um, much more clear. Certainly the groups that we're talking with are modelling carbon farming, carbon trading as one of the products in their, in their forestation plans. So it's coming closer. But it's not a simple matter to gear up an industry that has been running down for so long as well as the tourist industry built on boiling mud, Rotorua is the heart of New Zealand's forest industry, where you'll find the headquarters of many operations, timber companies and research bodies. For the last decade, the sector's been caught in a pincer movement, squashed by shrinking markets for the wood that's been produced and a lack of investment into new trees to keep the cycle going. Well, this is where it all begins. I'm standing at a forest seedling nursery on the outskirts of Rotorua. It's all quiet now, but at its peak in the summer season, this would be covered in millions of bright green radiated pine seedlings. Because they're at the beginning of the growing process, 
nurseries have been among the hardest hit in the forest industry as it goes through its worst downturn in decades. Grant Hastings has been in the nursery business for more than 20 years. He says it's at the lowest point he's seen it. I think it's still pretty flat. It has been for a number of years. Uh, We went from the peak periods in... 1994 of about 110, 115 million a year, down to about, I suppose, roughly 30 million a year now. So it's seen a large number of nurseries leave the industry. Why has it fallen so much? Uh, Partly because new plantings have decreased to virtually nothing, and I think at their peak they were around 30,000 hectares a year, and that just slowly diminished. And as well, forestry companies maybe are not clear-filling as much as what they used to. Also, there's been large amounts of forest sold off and they haven't been replaced, and that's probably one of the biggest things uh, that's, that's happened, is that that reforestation after clearfill isn't happening. Nurseries have been closing up and down the country. In the North Island alone, 9 out of 14 nurseries have closed their doors in the last decade. But Grant Hastings says things are finally looking up. He says this year nurseries have sold out of stock for the first time in years. Uh, there's certainly a little bit of noise, there's a little bit of life out there, and any sign of that's better than nothing. <laughs> I think we were probably at the bottom maybe 12 months ago and we're just starting to slowly slowly peak up again. Crucially, he says carbon farming is finally beginning to become a reality, however slowly. We've had a little bit of a trickle effect this year. Um, I've managed to make some sales to, uh, to one of those people. But uh, there's three things that really stand in the way of it happening, apart from any legislation, I suppose, and that is uh, finding the nursery capacity and the proper seed that they want to be able to grow the trees they want, which are um, high density for more stored carbon. So there's a very much a lack of seed at the moment, not even enough seed probably for what our own requirements are of the very best stuff. Then they have to find the land, and then they have to find the people to plant it and tend it. And to me, those are three really big stumbling blocks. And so what, it's easier to dream and think about it than to actually go ahead and do it? Oh, no, I think it's, yeah, well, I think you've got to dream. And these people are, are out there trying to do it. Um, it's just a matter of it takes a little bit of time and I'm sure that there's some pressure from overseas because I guess it is mainly overseas money that they want to get things done pretty quick but forestry doesn't just happen overnight. Grant Hastings' concern is how growers will gear up again when planting takes off. For now he leases unused space at a local research institute but he says with land prices so high he may struggle to find the extra space he'll need at short notice. And there's a global seed shortage for high-quality radiata pine, so a large step-up in planting would take at least three or four years. It's probably even longer than that because we actually, at the nursery here, do produce grafts for seed orchards, and you're really looking at probably seven years before that seed orchard comes into full production. So, yeah, that's probably even longer. If suddenly they wanted to double the seed output or something, it's going to take a while. Forestry is a long game. Even if more trees were planted tomorrow, they wouldn't be ready to come down for logs, timber and cardboard boxes or for any other emerging use until at least 2030. So the impacts of the highs and lows of tree investment and planting don't immediately flow through to other parts of the sector. In nearby Tokoroa, people like contractor Paul Olson, whose skill is to harvest and grade the mature trees, are deeply worried about the future lull the current deforestation will bring. Because of the long-term nature of the crop, it takes a long time for that to come through. So often you have to wait you know, 10 to 13 years to see the effect, but all you have to do is drive around this forest. And I think you know, in the nature of 11% of the forest has gone to other usage. So that, that 
has to have an effect in the future. You must worry then about future generations, you know, even about your own kids or about, you know, people you're working with now. Yeah, we do. We do. I mean, a lot of the flat country is going because that's suitable for dairy farming, which is what's happening at the moment. So, you know, I guess you look at the industry in a wider range than just our area. Um, you know, I've been worked in the same area for those 25 years and I've been pretty fortunate to be able to do that. And in the future, that might not be the case. Contractors should have plenty of work for the next 10 years at least because planting surged in the early 1990s. Which is just as well, because from where Paul Olson stands, there are no signs the new era of carbon farming has begun. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. And I don't think because people, I still don't think people are prepared to buy into that. There's a lot of talk and I think it's happening. But you know, if they did buy in, we would be seeing the effects. So I think everyone's having a dollar each way on, on carbon and they're sitting and waiting to see how it really happens. And I guess the leadership, you know, with the Kodo and the, and the uncertainty around, you know, and I guess you see... You know, places like Landcourt changing forestry into farms, you know, you wonder about, about the leadership there as well. If felling jobs are uncertain, it's because wood processors are facing a series of obstacles. 70% of all New Zealand's wood products are exported, leaving companies exposed to currency fluctuations. The New Zealand dollar wreaked havoc over the last decade, bouncing between 40 and 80 cents against the greenback. Shipping rates went through the roof as China contracted almost every available boat in the region to ship minerals from Australia. And now the domestic situation is turning down too. The main market for mills is in timber framing for building houses. Nine out of ten residential homes are still built this way. Tim Rigter is the general manager of Red Stag Timber on the outskirts of Rotorua. We focus on the structural market for New Zealand and Australia. And that's, that's been good for the last four years, but uh, certainly the last six months it's really slowed down significantly. So, you know, you look at the figures, I think we nearly peaked at 30,000 new homes and now we're down to probably 20 and we're going to go under 20,000. So, you know, we're looking at a 50% reduction from the peak. So, yeah, we've got to find somewhere else to sell that wood. From a control room in the mill, an operator is moving logs into a computerised saw system. Lasers scan each log as it arrives, measuring its size, roundness and shape. The computer maps the log in three dimensions and directs the saws to make cuts that ensure as many valuable pieces of timber as possible. This sort of technology is not particularly new, but a full refit of an old site could cost $50 million. Tim Rigdor says as wood has lost ground to concrete and steel in construction, the money has simply frozen up. There hasn't been enough investment. And that goes back to um, you know when I was in Fletcher's, we're an integrated company, and um, there wasn't enough profits. They were more, the big money was to be made in investing into forests, and that took a lot of the investment and not the processing sites. You look at Carter Holt Harvey, um, Fletcher Challenge Forest, some of those mills, yeah, there hadn't been much money put into them for 15, 20 years. Scion's Tom Richardson goes further. He believes the processing sector has been run into the ground and more closures are inevitable. With a very few exceptions, there are very few uh, wood processing firms that are making any margins at the moment. And uh, those that aren't are a dishearteningly long way back. Most of them are probably 20, 30 years behind in terms of the innovation they have in their facilities. They're probably, uh, on average, sort of a similar similar way behind in terms of understanding the rate at which innovation needs to find its way into their product mixes. And so I think there's, there's more blood there. 
In the driving seat are the forest owners, who own the trees and make the major investment decisions. In Wellington, I visited the chief executive of the Forest Owners Association, David Rhodes. We represent, um, I guess, around 80% of the planted forest estate in New Zealand, mainly radiata, but um, quite a significant component of Douglas fir in there as well. Uh, typically the corporate players, so these are um, large forests, um, as opposed to, say, the Farm Forestry Association, which is your smaller 5 to 10 hectare owners. The nine biggest companies together own more than half of the nation's planted forest. Much of the money they run on comes from overseas pension funds who want an asset in their portfolio that is stable and low risk. With a 28-year rotation cycle and trees constantly coming to maturity, the sector should satisfy that requirement. But over the last decade, some forests changed hands three times as returns declined steadily and uncertainty grew about the likelihood of future profits. Many industry leaders pin the blame on varying climate change policies. David Rhodes agrees. People putting large amounts of money into forestry, and it's a long-term investment, like to have investment certainty, and that's something that has typically been there in New Zealand in the past, but more recently with some of the uncertainty around the Kyoto rules, that's had an impact. You know, the types of people we're talking about don't like not knowing what the rules are, even if you don't like the rules as long as you know what they are. It's a great irony that the uncertainty created by attempts to deal with greenhouse gas emissions has badly hurt the industry when carbon policies should have been the catalyst for its revitalisation. The true believers have been preaching the value of carbon farming for years. But for industry morale, the turning point was a new sector-wide marketing programme launched last year. It's called New Zealand Wood. In a world where temperatures are rising... Poisons are pumped into the atmosphere and consumption increases daily even as our fuels are running out. In a world where the future is no longer certain, it's good to know that there's one natural product we can turn to again and again. The man behind the ad is Wellington public relations expert Jeff Henley. The issue with wood, and we found this from our research, is that wood is wood. Wood's been around a long time. It's good old wood. It doesn't generate a great deal of excitement in a lot of people's minds. The the phrase I sometimes use uh, with them is that it doesn't have the cool chic lines of steel, which is the sort of modern contemporary fashionable view. Wood's sort of lost its mojo a bit in the public mind. So there's nothing wrong with wood in people's mind. It just ain't as cool as it used to be. And, and so that is really the thing that we had to address. We had to give it some new meaning. We had to give it a point of difference. And, of course, the major point of difference that exists at the moment is that wood absorbs CO2, concrete and steel and other products, and it uses of CO2 in their production. In other words, wood is the primary material in a sustainable age. It seems forestry workers are solidly behind it. They're all talking about it, proud to have a good news story that gets away from the scarred earth that lingers after a clear felling operation. Jeff Henley says he sees that as the next challenge. 
We have got to get out there and tell that story. For example, one of the proposals, we haven't got to it yet, is every time there's a cut of trees like you're talking about, a sign goes up explaining what's happening and explaining that these are going to be replanted uh, and, uh, and explaining how the wood is going to be used for whatever it's going to be used and that it will store the, uh, the carbon and that type of thing. Now, these, these are the sorts of things that we want to get the public involved in and, and thinking about. It's just a matter of hours on the day and days on the week to get to, to these, but that certainly is is the direction because there is a story about wood now that we're trying to tell it and is being told and people are listening to it and they're beginning to understand it. One company that has thrown its lot in with forestry's new environmental message is Lockwood Homes. Their unique style of kitset wooden house has dotted the rural landscape since the company began in the 1950s. Other kitset homes use wood extensively in their construction, but Lockwood is seizing the carbon opportunity to remake itself too. Earlier this year it launched a new eco-smart line based on themes of high energy efficiency and low environmental footprint. Lockwood built the first one at their national showroom in Rotorua. The first thing you notice when you come into this eco-house is the amount of wood on display. All the walls are blonded pine, all the fittings are wooden, and the entire ceiling is wooden planks which rise to a glass atrium. It's startling to see a modern house so crammed full of timber. As well as the wood, they've packed this house full of technology to minimise the energy it takes to run it. The chief executive of Lockwood Homes, Bryce Hurd, says the house is the company's attempt to break into the urban, ecologically conscious market. And as it transpires, the way the market's moving with uh, increasing eco-awareness and climate change concerns, and wood, of course, is the material of the future. And Lockwood's sitting in a really good spot because with solid wood houses, uh, the house we're standing in right now, for example, has got 18.6 tonne of stored carbon locked up in the wood, in the house. The wood you see on the walls in front of you here is 52% by weight stored carbon. Bryce Hurd says they've had unprecedented interest. 12,000 people have been through this one display home since it opened six months ago. But Bryce Hurd admits there hasn't been a rush of sales yet. Yeah, this is the first one, and uh, yes, we have sold some, not many, but we've also sold quite a few features into other Lockwood houses of features in this house but the interest is extremely high and it takes a long time to convert into actual sales because by the time you get through the consent process and the design process it takes months it, it generally takes about four to six months from the day you decide you want to build to the day you get a building permit but nonetheless you do feel confident that this has been the right move for the company absolutely this is the way we're going this is our future and as i said all of our products benefit from this approach Crown Institute's Scion is at the centre of the carbon-conscious forest research effort. Its moulding equipment is forging a new generation of biomaterials, products made from the fibre of trees or other plants to replace the current plastics built from oil. But Scion's chief executive Tom Richardson says the development with the most immediate potential is in growing forests for energy. The new technologies that have changed the landscape is the ability to convert plants, uh, particularly woody plants, into transport fuels. And so in the New Zealand context, the work we've done here in Scion, we've done uh, with international partners, 
have really, I think, opened the eyes of a lot of folks in New Zealand to the opportunity that New Zealand has to domestically produce a significant portion of our uh, transport fuel requirements, which is not something that has been uh, potential uh, before this sort of technology has been, been developed. Most of the technology for that, um, for the conversion of trees to biofuels will be developed internationally, but they'll be suitable for the sort of feedstocks that we might grow in New Zealand, whether they're softwoods like pines and Douglas fir, or whether they're hardwoods like eucalyptus or acacia or poplars. New Zealand is very fortunate in that a lot of what we call marginal land, which is where you tend to grow biomass feedstocks, does have reasonable soil fertility and, and, um, uh, and rainfall, so we can grow these low-input forests. Scion estimates to replace petroleum with bioethanol in the nation's cars, buses and trucks would take almost 3 million hectares of forest, all the forests in the country now, and at least half as much again. Many industry people regard the idea as a pipe dream, cooked up by boffins in the lab. But Tom Richardson insists energy forests are just around the corner. Most pundits would suggest that the cost-effective lignocellulosic conversion will certainly be available by 2013 at the latest. And the demonstration plants, particularly in North America and Europe, are already being scaled up and tested. So the challenge, I think, for New Zealand is to be an attractive recipient for that emerging technology as it comes online between 2013 and 2020. The modelling that we've done would suggest that there's sufficient feedstocks by 2040, with planting beginning soonish, to supply a significant portion of New Zealand's transport fuel requirements from domestically grown trees. The other big development set to shake up the industry is a $500 million treaty settlement with a collective of nine Māori tribes of the central North Island. Dubbed Tree Lords, the settlement will see the transfer of the land of the Kaingaroa and surrounding forests, as well as more than $200 million in accumulated rental payments. Dixon Chapman of Tuwharetoa is the manager of the tribal collective's secretariat. He says the collective is determined to be a significant force. The dynamics of New Zealand industry, and all insiders will tell you, that the lack of a cohesive national strategy or even regional strategy to the development of, one, the, the, the forestry base itself, two, uh, the marketing of, and three, the development in terms of added value processes, uh, which could be enhance the uh, forestry value, just hasn't been done. And that's because it's so fragmented, the industry. And we fully expect that the way in which the collective has come together, the commercial vehicles that we're going to utilise, uh, will bring about some uh, synergies and, and unity to the industry, just by sheer critical mass. Uh, 176,000 hectares, plus what, up to 100,000 or more hectares additional to that that the individual iwi have in their own framework. Overnight we've gone from being isolated small lot holders to a significant, if not the most significant, land-based part of this industry. The carbon credits were a significant negotiating point, though their real value is not yet known. Dixon Chapman says they were both a property right and an extra responsibility iwi have willingly accepted. Well, part of the settlement of the CNI is there has been an allowance for the carbon credits and units. And by us agreeing to that, we've agreed to be part of that paradigm. And having said that, there was not a problem for the collective. The members believe when, you know, we're all part of the, the natural, the kaitiakia responsibilities of ours. We said that we should have an honest look at it, and it made sense in terms of those principles that we have in terms of the land and caring for it and you know, nature. Uh, but it also, again, made some commercial sense. And so when you ask the question, we are part of that industry 
because we signed off on it knowingly. David Rhodes says other forest owners will welcome the much-needed stability the deal will bring. He believes it's just another reason why the industry has passed its nadir in terms of forest planting and investment. He says carbon may prove to be just the beginning in the years to come. I see carbon as, as being hopefully the, the first cab off the rank, but I think there are some other values out there as well. And you start thinking about nitrogen, water quality, biodiversity. It may well be that we are going to see similar markets developing for them in the future. And if they do, and there certainly are efforts internationally looking at that at the moment, then forestry will again, uh, it may be able to add several more of these strings to its bow. Lockwood's Bryce Hurd is greatly cheered by the way foresters are finally embracing their green credentials. I've always been critical as a member of the industry of our slowness in uptaking on the benefits of wood. We've traditionally tried to sell wood in competition with things like steel and aluminium and competed on their playing field. We've competed on things like strength and stiffness and stability, whereas our real strength is environmental sustainability. And we haven't used that card until recent times. It's really pleasing to me to see New Zealand Wood doing what they're doing with their campaign because I think that campaign really outlines the benefit of wood. And believe me, wood is coming back into vogue with the climate change issue and the environmental awareness issue. It's bringing wood right back in and it will be the material of first choice. With or without the help of the industry, inevitably that's going to happen. And the industry now is picking up on this growing environmental awareness and starting to position itself, selling on strengths. Great to see. David Rhodes of the Forest Association says he is confident better times are just about to begin. What we are seeing is not a true reflection of forestry's worth. I don't believe that the fundamentals of forestry are such that we should see deforestation on the scale that we've seen it and no new planting. I mean there are so many reasons at the moment why New Zealand should be seeing an increased interest in trees, not the reverse. It won't be long before we find out if he is right. The closely fought emissions trading scheme passed into law seven weeks ago. Forestry is the first sector to join, so carbon markets seem likely to shape its future for better or for worse. That program was written and presented by Ian Telfer. Technical production was by Katrina Batten. Executive production was by Philip Atolli.